And for lack of a better title, we'll use the points of the message to describe the subject matter. An unholy alliance, an ungodly king, a faithful prophet, and a sovereign God. The setting here is that King Jehoshaphat, he's the fourth king in the divided monarchy of Judah. After Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, the kingdom was divided under his reign. He is the son of Asa. Ahab is the son of Amri. He is the seventh king in the line of the kings of Israel, starting with Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who was the first king of Israel in the divided monarchy. The scene here is that Jehoshaphat goes to visit Ahab at Samaria. And while he is there, as we just read, Ahab poses the question to his servants in the earshot of Jehoshaphat, Is not Ramoth Gilead ours? And it was part of Israel. The king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, had taken it, his father before him. And when Ahab had conquered the king of Assyria, he had let king Ben-Hadad go, although he had promised to give Israel part of the property, all the property his father had taken. And so while some was given back, Ramoth Gilead was still under the control of king of Syria. So Ahab wants to take it back. And he said to Jehoshaphat in verse 4, Wilt thou go with me to battle to Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as thou art, my people as thy people, and my horses as thy horses. Now this is a strong statement of alliance. In our modern language, Jehoshaphat would say of Ahab, bro, or brah, however the people say it today. They are tight. They have a close relationship. And the language here is almost the language of a marriage covenant. You remember when you said, I do, that meant her money was your money. Your money was her money. Her car was your car, and your car was her car. And yes, her debt was your debt, and your debt was her debt. And you gladly took it on, because you made a bond, a covenant of marriage that's supposed to be tight and unbroken. So Jehoshaphat makes this statement, my people are like yours, my horses are like yours, which is to say my military is for you. He didn't just say, yes, I'll go with you. He said, I am with you and all that is mine is for you, except for one thing he left off. He didn't say, my God is your God, because they did not serve the same gods. 1 Kings 21, 25. But there was none like unto Ahab, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord. What was Jehoshaphat thinking? What happened to Jehoshaphat that he could align himself with such a tight-knitted relationship? Whereby his own words, he is with him to the fullest extent. When there's nobody before Ahab that was sold out to do evil, which means he was totally committed, devoted, he was all in to do evil. This, beloved, is an unholy alliance that should have never taken place. 1 Kings 16, verse 30, a description of Ahab. There was none before Ahab that did did do evil in the sight of the Lord. 
Nobody before him in the kings that did as much evil as he did. And if that was a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which was not a small thing, he went to greater lengths and he took to his wife the daughter of King Ethbaal. Now listen to that name. Ethbaal of the Zidonians. Jezebel. And who did Jezebel worship, whose dad was Ethbaal? Baal, the false god. And what did Ahab do? He erected an altar to Baal and a house of worship for Baal in Samaria, and he worshiped the false god Baal. Now some commentators say that Jeroboam sinned. He said with his mouth, I'll serve the Lord, and he did it his own way and he didn't. But Ahab said with his mouth, I will not serve the Lord. Furthermore, it says, he did more to provoke God to anger than anybody before him. Now, would you form such an alliance with a man where it was stated, there's nobody that stirred the wrath of God more than King Ahab. And finally, in 1 Kings 16, he was so determined to evil He went against the prophecy and the curse of Joshua in Joshua 6.26 that said, Cursed be the man that builds Jericho, because he'll lay the foundations in his oldest son, and he'll lay the gate thereof in the youngest son. And if you read the last verse of 1 Kings 16, that's exactly what happened. As he hired a man, presumably, to build Jericho, they laid the foundation in his oldest son, and the gates went up in his youngest son which likely meant the oldest son died and the youngest one too when the completion of Jericho was built, fulfilling the curse that Joshua made to any man that would dare build the ruins of Jericho. What a wicked man! What an evil man! What an ungodly man! And yet, Jehoshaphat says, I am as you are, my people is your people, my horses are your horses. Now, we want to pose the question, what could have possibly happened to Jehoshaphat that he could enter into such an unholy alliance? Well, let's go back to the Scripture reading this morning in chapter 17 and see what was going on before he made this alliance. Chapter 17 of 2 Chronicles, verse 1. And Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his stead, that is the son of Asa, and strengthened himself against Israel. That means he strengthened himself against Ahab and against the northern ten tribes of Israel. What did he do? He understood the danger of the northern ten tribes. So he strengthened himself in three ways. First, physically. Verse 2. He placed forces in the fenced cities and set garrisons in the land of Judah. Forces, fences, fortresses. Now, that's a good thing for a king to do. When you see danger, when a country sees danger, you fortify the country against the danger for the sake of the citizens. He strengthened himself physically against Ahab, against Israel. Secondly, he strengthened himself spiritually. See, the greater danger was not physical, was it? It was spiritual. Verse 3, the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the first ways of his father David and sought not unto Balaam, but sought to the Lord God of his father and walked in his commandments and not after the doings, the ways, the deeds of Israel. 
He kept a safe distance. He would not walk in the ways of Israel or Ahab. Therefore the Lord established the kingdom in His hand, and all Judah brought to Jehoshaphat presents, and he had riches and honor and abundance. And his heart was lifted up, not in pride, but in the ways of the Lord. He sought the Lord in fulfillment of what God would say later when the the whole nation was sent into Babylon. He said they would come back when, when they prayed and sought the Lord with their whole heart and they will be found of me. Here, Jehoshaphat is seeking the Lord with his whole heart because his heart is lifted up in the ways of God, not in the ways of Baal or the world. And what did he find of God? What does God expect you to find of Him when He says, Seek me while I may be found? What does God want you to find in Him? Joy and peace and to have your soul satisfied in God. That's what God aims for you to find. That's the whole point of salvation. God is glorified when we find our hearts resting in Him. And Jehoshaphat is strengthened spiritually. But it doesn't stop there. He's going to strengthen the people. Mentally. Verse 7, the third year of his reign, he sent to his princes, and Brother Chris did an excellent job of reading those names. I did tell him ahead of time, you might want to look at that, so I'm not going to try and repeat it. He did excellent. Verse 8, and with them he sent Levites, and there's the name of those. And in verse 9, what did they do? They taught in Judah and had the book of the law of the Lord with them and went about throughout all the cities of Judah and taught the people. Physically, spiritually, mentally. Now here's our first application. Parents, what are you doing to strengthen the hearts and minds of your children? Are you fortifying them against the ways of the world? You may say, well, you know, we send them to a Christian school and we homeschool them. Well, God does not expect you to put all that responsibility on someone else. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, and all thy strength. And these things shall be in thy heart, and you shall teach them diligently unto your children. And you know the context there, the, the teaching there in the Malu is what? When you sit down, when you rise up, when you walk, and when you lie down. In other words, throughout the day, when you're with your children, you're bringing to their hearts and minds the ways of God. You're fortifying them against the ways of the world. Jehoshaphat was such a man. Are you fulfilling that responsibility to your children? Now you young adult children, are you fortifying yourself against the ways of the world? Say, well, I come here on Sunday. You know, your mind probably takes in, this is depressing to me, takes in about 60% of what's said. Bad day, 40%, you're kind of groggy. Some of you may get 5% or 0%. And now you're going to spend six days on social media and take in all the ways of the world and you think you're fortified. And even on the seventh in the afternoon, you're going to spend some time doing that. You cannot be fortified against the world with a sermon on Sunday, which, you know, I'll just take you, young mothers, for example, I mean, sometimes you don't get to hear anything. You know, you're out of the door there trying to get the little tyke to, to sit still, and I commend you for that. And let me say caveat, mothers, 
There are many Christian women before you that had multiple children that pressed on. Don't be a weak woman. Don't be a weak man. You stay with it and do the hard work of training your children. And that means you have to go out and in a lot of times. A dad, you need to do it too. You don't get to hear much. I get it. So how are you going to be fortified? You can't rely on this service alone to strengthen yourself against Israel, against the ways of the world. You must, it is imperative that you take in the ways of God, that you have your heart lifted up in the ways of God through the Word of God. You might form unholy alliances too. I mean, when we read all that's happening with Jehoshaphat, it's really remarkable that he could have such a close alliance, which tells us what? None of us are too strong. None of us are at the place we can say, well, I've reached this plateau and I can let my guard down. And that's the point, isn't it? Jehoshaphat let his guard down. How do I know that? Chapter 18, verse 1. Now Jehoshaphat had abundance, had riches and honor in abundance and joined affinity with Ahab. This is the man he strengthened himself against. This is the nation he guarded his nation and himself against. And something between chapter 17 and chapter 18 happened that he let his guard down and moved to affinity with a very wicked man. Affinity here, you probably know, means Jehoshaphat's son married Ahab's daughter. I want you to see this. It doesn't say the children joined affinity. Now, we don't know how this relationship came about. Uh, a lot of times the kings arranged these marriages for political power and political expediency. What could he have possibly gained in this? And it says Jehoshaphat made the affinity, not his children. Now, they may have been willing to go along. They may have really been in love or it may have been an arranged marriage. What could he have possibly gained from such an alignment? Well, he had riches and honor and abundance and joined. Could it not be that he set his eyes on more honor from such an alliance? More esteem? It was not uncommon for kings, like it's not uncommon today, for countries to have alliance. You know, it was Solomon's downfall that in 1 Kings 3.1, he made affinity with Pharaoh and did what? Married his daughter and unlocked the door to his idolatry. We can't just be real dogmatic in terms of what happened, but we know from chapter 17, strengthen himself against Israel. Now, apparently, Jehoshaphat's going to strengthen himself in Israel. Now you say, perhaps you're being a little too hard on Jehoshaphat. I mean, kings did that. Chapter 19, verse 1. After the battle was over, where Jehoshaphat's life was almost taken because of this alliance, God spared him miraculously. And Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned to his house in peace to Jerusalem. And Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? Therefore is wrath upon you from the Lord. In other words, God was highly displeased with Jehoshaphat. 
And He's displeased with us when we make such unholy alliances. Now, hear the question again. Should we who love God not hate the evil? That's Psalm 97. Or as He poses it here, should you love them that hate the Lord? And the rhetorical answer, and of course the displeasure of the Lord tells us we should not. We should not. Well, shouldn't we help the ungodly? Shouldn't we love our enemies? Shouldn't we love our neighbor, whether they're godly or not? Yes, but the language here suggests, as Jehoshaphat himself says, and it is clear from the infinity, he went beyond that, and he joined affinity, alliance, and a close connection with a very ungodly man that almost cost him his life. Now here's our next application to what the New Testament tells us and the Old Testament tells us about an affinity with the world and ungodly people. That's where you have a close, close relationship. You've got to have some kind of relationship with ungodly. The owner of your company may be ungodly. The people working next to you at the workplace may be ungodly. But this goes beyond by Jehoshaphat's own words that he was in a close relationship and he let his guard down with regard to the dangers of Israel. Have you let your guard down with your children, with yourself, when it comes to the dangers of the world that we live in? So here are a couple of verses. Let's start with the Old Testament. Psalm 1.1. Listen to the language again. Blesses is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. He does not stand with sinners, nor does he sit in the seat of the scornful. Now notice the progression of an unholy alliance. First you walk with this person. Then you stop and stand with this person. Then you get comfortable and sit down. The blessed man doesn't do that. It doesn't say don't be with ungodly people. It doesn't say don't ever talk to them. The progression is becoming a close companion. Now here's the contrast. But the blessed man's delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Now here's the problem, see? What's, what's wrong with it? That's the lowest possible question you could ever ask your parents. You know that when you say what's wrong with it, you're on the wrong, you're on the wrong side of the street already. What you're saying is, if it's okay, I'm going to do it no matter what. You should be saying, what's righteous about it? You know, I get that question sometimes. Well, what's wrong with it? Well, you, you tell me what's righteous about it. Well, um, uh, you get some him hawing around. See, everything's not so simple, just black and white. It takes wisdom. It takes calling on the name of the Lord. But here in Psalm 1, the problem is this. What's wrong with it? There is nothing in the ungodly to draw them to delight in God. But there is something in you that will delight in the ways of the world. And you know that from your own experience. I know it. It's called the flesh. So who's going to win that battle? Who's going to win that with a close companionship? The Bible says the wicked will win. You will get drawn on their pathway in a close connection because there's nothing that will draw them to your pathway until they're converted, right? 1 Corinthians 15 again, the resurrection chapter we looked at last Sunday. Paul said, if I have fought with beasts at Ephesus after the manner of men, which means he's using figurative language. He's using the example of like fighting with a beast 
which means he had some tension, he had some wrestling going on with men, not physically, but spiritually. He says, If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, and the dead rise not, what does advantage me? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now this is what Paul is saying. If there's no resurrection, I'm going to never sing the hymn again. O Christ, He is the fountain, that deep, sweet well of love. The streams on earth I've tasted more deep. I'll drink above. Now to an ocean fullness. Paul says, if there's no resurrection, there's no ocean I'm going to. So forget these streams because there's no fullness coming. What's Paul going to do? I'm going to drink as deeply and as hard and as much as I can take into the world as I can. You know why? There's no resurrection. That's what Paul is saying. There's no advantage. But what did he say? But now Christ is risen. All right, now hear what Paul says next in relation to our text. Be not deceived, evil companions corrupt good manners. Don't be led astray in thinking you're wiser than God. Now that's my problem sometimes. If you were to ask me that, I'd say, are you crazy? No. But sometimes my actions seem to indicate that I think I'm wiser than God. Don't be deceived. Evil communications will lead you to live a life, let us eat and drink and be merry. Because you've forgotten there's a resurrection and there's a God and a Savior called Christ. So what does Paul call the church to do? Awake to righteousness and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. So let's turn that around. When we're armed with the knowledge of God, we are awakened to righteousness And we're kept from being deceived or led away by evil companions because we know in the world to come there is an ocean of mercy and fullness that will satisfy us forever. Beloved, don't let your guard down. There's already enough that we have to struggle with in the community of believers and keeping separate from the world. To let your guard down like Jehoshaphat did and to move out in affinity... And again, we're, we're applying this beyond marrying someone that's an unbeliever. Certainly those two don't have concord and fellowship and agreement, right? That's one application. But just companions with those of the world who love the world, who live in the world, who hate God. They're enemies of God. And now you're going to align yourself with a God-hater. What does that suggest? What does that mean? It means you're in danger means you're moving on to the pathway that leads to destruction. means you may have already taken that turn. And now God in His grace and mercy is doing what? He's calling you back. Right here, right now, calling you back. Somebody here is on the wrong pathway. It could be. You've aligned yourself with the wrong people. And God is graciously saying, come back. Come back. And I can't help but point out the grace of God... All the while, he is angry with Jehoshaphat. He says so himself. And Ahab, when he goes out to battle, he says, Jehoshaphat, you put on the king's robes. What I'm going to do, I'm going to disguise myself. Now, I wasn't born yesterday. Jehoshaphat has lost his discernment. I mean, that's where you kind of scratch and say, why are you disguising yourself? And I'm looking like a king. Well, because Ahab knows in battle... If they can kill the king, well, they can get the victory because it scatters the people. So he goes out in his 
kingly robes. He's lost all discernment. And while he's there, the 32 captains of Ben-Hadad, he says to them, I want you to do one thing, kill Ahab. So they see this man with robes on, and so they surround the chariot, they surround his chariot. This must be Ahab. They've got their javelins drawn. And all of a sudden, the man who is displeasing God with his affinity, he just cries out. And the Lord helped him. The Lord moved on those men so that they perceived it wasn't Ahab. Now, how did they perceive that? They didn't know Ahab from Sam. God so influenced them, and they turned and left Jehoshaphat. And here's the application of Psalm 124. If it had not been that the Lord was on our side, now may Israel say, and he repeats it again, if it had not been the Lord on our side, we had soon been swallowed up by the enemy. How many times, beloved, in your sin, whether it's deliberate or accidental, God has come to you, even when He's displeased with us, because as a father, He's displeased with sin. And He rescues us again and again and again. And God, this morning, graciously, is using this passage to call you back to a life devoted to Him, a life that will bring you joy, a life that will lead you all the way to glory. But we have to take heed to His Word and listen to the God of the Bible who knows all and just take God at His Word. Jehoshaphat lets down his guard and even though he sinned, God was gracious to him. And then in verse 3 of chapter 19, just to note, Nevertheless, there are good things found in thee, Jehoshaphat. And you know what? There's good things found in you as a believer. It's called the Holy Spirit. So what did Jehoshaphat do? In that thou hast taken away the groves out of the land and hast prepared thine heart to seek the Lord. And then he went back throughout all Judah again, strengthened them once again in the Lord. He repented. He turned. And the Lord graciously received him. Isn't that good news? You have a God who is gracious. He is ready to pardon. He's leaning towards you. It's, it's like he's got his hand on a cane and he just flip it out from under him and he's coming to forgive you. That's the description of our God. Next, let's take a moment and we'll spend our last few moments looking at an ungodly king. We noted something about Ahab, but let's look at some of the specifics of his ungodliness. So at the, uh, the request of Jehoshaphat in 1 Kings 22, the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400, and of course, what did they say? Earlier in 1 Kings, all the prophets sat at Jezebel's table. See, they were on her payroll and on Ahab. So he gathers 400 people. What do they say? Yeah, go on out there. You're going to win. The Lord's with you. Jehoshaphat still has enough discernment at this point to say, but is there someone else? Something doesn't ring true about that. And so he says, there's one man left in verse 8. One man, Micaiah the son of Imlah. We may inquire of the Lord, but I got to tell you, I hate the man. Why do you hate him? Because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. Now get the picture here. Ahab has so redesigned, reshaped his entire world from his wife to his prophets. Their aim is to do one thing. Tell Ahab exactly what he wants to hear. Now, the modern term that we could apply to Ahab that's being kicked around a lot in our culture is that Ahab is a full-blown, card-carrying member of the narcissist club. 
He is a narcissist. What is that? Well, it was a word coined at the end of the 19th century that's getting a lot of buzz. Simply means this. He's a pathological, self-absorbed man. Pathological means it's excessive. It's excessive. Now, the birth of narcissism way before the word narcissism came in Genesis 3. And the indication of narcissism, one of them we'll look at, is that people start defending themselves. And that's what happened in the garden. Narcissism is excessive, I think, in periods of time in history of, of cultures is because when conditions are not so good economically and people are poor and it's hard, it's kept in check because people then are more concerned about other people. A narcissist has no concern about anyone else because he's excessively self-absorbed. Case in point about hard times. What happens when there's a natural disaster in our culture? People for a moment forget themselves and they turn and help other people. What happens when there's a long period of prosperity, ease, comfort? Narcissism is on the rise. Now that's not just my opinion. There are a countless number of psychiatrists and secular unbelievers today saying we live in a narcissist culture. Let me give you a description of one man, of what that looks like. Now remember, a psychiatrist can diagnose things correctly. They just never have the solution. So they're always going to give you bad counsel, but they can tell you the problem. So here's what one man says about our society that depicts narcissism. Cheating, deception, and lying have become a new normal, most notably in education, business, politics, and the media. Crime is rampant and growing in all major cities. Riots motivated across a range of left to right ideologies seem to be increasing. Fathers in large numbers abandon their children. Marriages is in decline. More couples are deliberately childless. Deliberately. Widespread alcohol, drugs, sex, and other addictions increase the number of people who contribute little to society and require support services from others. Narcissistic hostility leads to calling people who believe differently vile names and shunning, magnifying social, stunning, magnifying social alienation. The divisive diminishing of others for bad beliefs and behaviors is aggravated when narcissists hypocritically do the same bad things and excuse the wrongdoing of those in their own group. And lastly, people are making more and more unrealistic demands on society and government to cater to their perceived needs. And that one pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? What are they demanding? Government, education, parents, businesses to cater to whatever their desires are. And if you don't, there's going to be a riot. There's going to be a problem. Now, would you not agree we live in a narcissist society? And we are deceived if we think none of that could rub off on us. So let's look at Ahab's narcissism. Well, it starts in redefining good. That's where it starts. He never, you could insert, because he says he does that, he never, he does not prophesy good concerning me, but only evil. His self-absorption is to the point 
where he expects every word of counsel, every word of every confidant to be good in a way that he defines it. And how does he define it? If it's what I like to hear, that's good. And if it's not what I like to hear, then that's evil. So the 400 prophets, they understand where their bread is buttered. And so they say what? No, it's good. It's good for you to go to Ramoth Gilead. You know what? Because that's what he wants to do. Isaiah 5 verse 20. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil to put darkness for light, light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Now what could possibly happen that someone, you and I could taste a teaspoon of the same bowl of sugar and you think it's sweet and I'm like, whew, that's bitter. Now you may not like sugar, but it's not bitter. And then you and I could take a taste of that unsweetened Hershey cocoa and put a little water in it, mix it up, put it on your tongue. And you said, oh, that's bitter. And I said, boy, that, that stuff is sweet. That is who Ahab is. That's a narcissist because he's self-absorbed. It's his own taste buds. It's his own way of seeing that determines what is good or evil. Now the next verse, 21 in Isaiah 5, tells us that. Woe unto them who are wise where in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Where have we heard these words before? When she saw the food was to make one wise. She saw it with her own eyes and she thought it would make her wise. What was it going to make her wise to do? She would get to determine what is good and what is evil. And what's the upshot of that? Ahab. When you're wise in your own eyes, you do whatever pleases you in your own eyes, and then you start calling good what your pleasure is, and evil is anything opposed to it. The only one that can say what is right in his own eyes is the one who has pure, holy eyes. And you and I don't. Even in Christ, our eyes are not totally pure yet. We must rely on God whose eyes are holy and pure and His wisdom is impeccable to tell us what is good and what is evil. And our society has abandoned that. And you know it. I don't even have to give you examples. And so, he says, He doesn't tell me what my self-absorbed, self-centered person wants. And that's why I hate the man. Now what about the hatred in our culture? Is it not stemming? Is the hatred not stemming because you won't affirm what I think is good? And in fact, you have the gall to tell me it's bad. Which leads to the second indication of narcissism. Anger. Anger. Chapter 21, verse 1. And it came to pass after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard, which was in Jezreel, hard by the palace, Ahab, king of Samaria. Next to Ahab's palace. And Ahab spake unto Naboth, saying, Give me the vineyard, that I may have it for a garden of herbs. That sounds reasonable. Because it is near my house, that's even more reasonable. I mean, I can look right out the window and see it every day. And I will give thee for it a better vineyard than it, or if it seem good to thee, I will give thee the worth of it in money. I suppose he could have named his price. That's a very reasonable offer, is it not? 
And Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid it me that I should give the inheritance of my fathers unto thee. The Lord forbid it. Now it's likely forbidden because it was handed down generationally to Naboth because God had given by lot to the tribes of Israel land and he told them not to sell it. So I'm, I'm sorry, uh, king, I, I can't do it. My father gave it to me and you know, he told me to keep it and I'm going to keep it and pass it down. Now here's a narcissist's response. And Ahab came into his house heavy and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. This is the second time verbatim that God tells us that Ahab was heavy and displeased. Heavy means stubborn, implacable, rebellious, resentful, and sulky. I wish I could say that last one was never part of my life, but you get it, I can't. Sulky, gloomy, resentful. What does resentful mean? It means he thinks he's been treated unfairly. I've been mistreated. What was so unfair about the treatment? Nothing but a narcissist twist everything to align with their self-absorption. And all he knows is that I didn't get the vineyard that I wanted. And so he's angry. And notice how his anger is expressed. He goes home, he lays down on his bed, turns away his face, and would eat no bread. He's not kicking furniture across the room and punching his fist through a wall. He's very controlled and calm. Now, Jezebel, I get the idea that she's more the type that would let you know it when she's angry. She's probably going to yell. She's probably going to throw a few things, perhaps. But the more deceptive kind is the person that's under complete control. But they're displeased or frustrated is the word. It's the orge anger of the New Testament that's very settled and abiding and under control and just gradually remains and produces a bitterness and a resentful attitude that that acts itself out toward another person. So he's just not going to talk to anybody. Put your hand up. You ever done that, men or women? No, I, I don't want to talk. This does not please God. Well, of course we know that about Ahab, right? So he's an angry person. And he's the kind of angry person that is more deceptive because if I put my hand through the wall, at least I know that was not good, but if I'm under control, it is more deceptive otherwise. So his self-absorption that redefines, which means he's self-deified, you know, he's become to the place, like the devil tempted Eve, to say, you'll be the God of your own life, you'll determine good and evil because of your self-absorption, you'll determine what's wise in your own eyes, and that means when people don't treat you right, you're the victim, you're the person that's been mistreated. Do we not see that in our culture? Everybody's a victim. Now at this point in the sermon, some of you are saying silently, preach it, brother, and you're looking like this to the left and right, and you're thinking, yeah, my wife needs to hear that, my husband. I want to show you that you're a card-carrying member of the Narcissist Club. Maybe that's a bit extreme. The point is we all have these tendencies, because if we just use the New Testament word, it's self-centeredness, right? That's excessive, yeah, it can get excessive like in our culture, but it's even there when it's not excessive. So, so we all can apply this. You know, get rid of the label. I, I'm just using it because it's a buzzword today. And everybody's using it. But the Bible word is just self-absorbed. 
That's what the fall of Adam brought to me, and that's what it brought to you. So I'm a, I'm a card-carrying member of the Narcissist Club. I hate to say that, but you just need to confess it too. So what's next? He's a manipulator. Why did God want to tell us that he laid on his bed and turned his face away and he wouldn't eat any bread? Because he wants us to see verse 5. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why are your spirits so sad? And why won't you eat? Because that is exactly what he wanted her to ask. Ahab is practicing gaslighting. Now that's another fancy word. I had to look it up. Why do they call it that? It's based on some movie years ago where a man was causing a woman to lose sight of reality. He created a false narrative so she was confused about reality to get his way. And it had something to do with the gaslight. This is a form of manipulation where you can turn the events around in such a way that you're the victim, you've been mistreated, and the person who did right is the wrong person. And it is so deceptive. I wish I could say I've never done gaslighting, but you guessed it. I've just got a pretty astute wife that can look through it. Thank God, and I'm sure you have one too. So what's his manipulation? He wants Jezebel to ask the question. She does, and he says, The reason I'm sad is it's Naboth, the Jezreelitess. He wouldn't give me the vineyard with such a reasonable offer. And guess what? She took care of it. That's exactly what he wanted to happen. This is not the first time Ahab did this. Remember in 1 Kings 17 when he was confronted with Elijah and God sent fire down and 400 prophets were killed? He goes back and tells his wife, Elijah just killed 400 of the prophets because he knows he can manipulate her to take action. And so he does and sends the messenger, go tell Elijah, so be done unto me. By the gods, if I don't take your life today. Well, you're the king. You go take his life if you want to. Oh, no. He's a manipulator. He's a narcissist. He's self-absorbed. He's skilled. He, he can influence and so control the situation to get what he wants. And he got what he wanted. Now, let me give you a hypothetical of how gaslighting might have worked. This is hypothetical. It's nowhere in the Bible. I'm just going to give you an illustration. So Jezebel in verse 7 said, Dost not thou govern the kingdom of Israel? So suppose they went to Naboth and was going to reason with him. And Jezebel says, You see Ahab here? Is he not your king? Yeah, yeah, he's the king. Does he not have authority? Yeah, he has authority. Yeah, yeah. Has he not protected this nation against criminals and people that would invade it? Yes, yes, yes. Does that mean he has not protected your property? Yep. Yeah, I suppose he has. Do you see he's upset? Yeah, yeah, he seems pretty upset. Do you see how that's your fault? Well, no, yeah, no. Give him the vineyard. Okay, okay, it's yours. What just happened? What skill? And so turning the narrative to be false so that the other person's wrong and Ahab is always right. Now let me reiterate, that's a a hypothetical, but that's an illustration of what gaslighting is. And I'm sure in your relationships, both husband and wife, you've been guilty. You know why I'm so sure? Because I've been guilty. I wish I could say it. I never even heard of such a thing, but when you put it like that, we all have a little narcissism in us, don't we? We all are a bit self-absorbed and can be so skillful 
and getting our way to the confusion of the person who maybe in that instant had no wrong. Naboth is not wrong in any way. And here's the next point of a narcissist. He blames Naboth for his sin. When she asked him, what's the problem? He said, honey, I have been so self-absorbed. You're going to be shocked when I tell you this. I can't believe it. It makes me feel bad. I actually expected Naboth to give up his inheritance. No, he didn't say that. He said, Naboth is the problem. You want to know why I'm so sad? You know why I'm so angry and frustrated? You know why I'm so sullen and sulky? Naboth wouldn't give me the vineyard. He wouldn't do it. What did he just do? He just blamed Naboth for his sin. How subtle is that? How despicable. How terrible. And yet how much do you and I, you have to admit, we engage in some of the same tactics. We so easily blame one another, just like Adam, instead of confessing what he had done, instead of Eve confessing what they had done, we have the birth of narcissism. And how excessive was it then to defend yourself before a righteous, holy, eye-piercing God who knows every detail, and yet you still won't confess? That's narcissist to the hilt, isn't it? And Ahab is such a man. And then lastly, and let me point out while I'm here, this is not the first occasion. What did he say to Elijah when Elijah came to confront him at Mount Carmel? Are you the one that troubles Israel? What nerve! It was his idolatry. It was his sin that brought the three years and six months famine. And he has the nerve to accuse Elijah. You know why? He's a narcissist. He's self-absorbed. And then in chapter 21, when Elijah meets him again, verse 20, And Ahab said unto Elijah, Hast thou found me, O mine enemy? Now what's an enemy do to you? An enemy is against you. An enemy is your problem. An enemy is the source of your grief, right? What's he saying? You're my problem, Elijah. If you would just go away, life would be good. And maybe you've said something similar. Okay, last thing here is Ahab is a punisher. He's a punisher. See, when things don't go well in conflict, when things don't go well, when the narcissist wants what he wants, people come up missing. <laughs> what happened to Naboth? Oh, he's dead. What happened in 1 Kings 18? Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord. Obadiah hid them by 50 in a cave and gave them bread and water. Cut off there doesn't mean she just said, well, you're fired. It means, well, you're dead. And she started killing them. How many times in our narcissism do we cut one another off? Even in marriage relationships, friendships, church life. Because you would not say to me what I thought was good. And then how did he punish Micaiah for saying the truth of God? How did he cut him off? He said, go put the man in prison, which I think that's where he came from. Why did he have to go send for Micaiah? Probably already there in prison. He was was in another area. He said, take him to the governor and give him bread of affliction and water of affliction until I return. Well, Ahab didn't return. He's a punisher. Are you a punisher? 
when someone begins to start saying things that you don't like, you just cut them off. You just punish them. You get angry because you know, you know what they say is not what you define good for your life. I wish I could tell you here in this pulpit, I just don't do that, but I do. How many times I can think of my life where people closest to me wanted to tell me something and initially I was like, I don't want to hear that. Now here's where we ask the question. Is there any hope for a narcissist like you and like me? And this is the best part of the sermon, isn't it? Why do I go long sometimes? This is where I want to go. This is where I want to get to. Right? Your help is not found in a practice, a principle, a habit, a technique. It's found in a person and his name is Jesus Christ. Ahab doesn't know this Christ. He doesn't know God, but Jehoshaphat does. And he finds his help in God alone. And you and I can find our help in Christ alone. In Christ alone. So here is is where I'll end with what we need to do. When our narcissist personalities or tendencies, because we all have a a self-absorption we're dealing with, even if it's not excessive. When it tends to rear its ugly head the most is when conflict and when things aren't going well. Or when somebody's about to say something to you, you know. I don't think I'm going to like that. The self-absorption floods up into the soul. And at that moment, as a believer, you can go in one of two directions. It's just a quick moment. Because the Holy Spirit has been given to you to convict your conscience. In that moment, when you feel the narcissism rise up in your soul, and the Holy Spirit communicates to you in a brief moment, communicates, and you know you've experienced it, You can think of a time where it came and you felt, this is wrong, what I'm doing. But you ignored him. And you went on in the narcissist's path path, with all the things that Ahab did. So here's three ways when you respond. In that moment, you can run and build a building of self-righteousness. You can start laying the defense, which is what a narcissist will do every time. He starts, he starts gaslighting, she starts gaslighting, starts defending, erecting it, and at the end of the conversation, he or she's going to show how you were wrong. A narcissist is even willing to acknowledge some wrong. Yeah, I did that wrong. But, and at the end of the day, he or she's going to win. What just happened? You built a tower of self-righteousness and self-justification that's going to crumble. God's going to bring it down. Or you can run under the righteousness of Jesus Christ again and again and again. Now, how would you do that? 1 John 1, 9. Here's the first thing that needs to happen in that moment as soon as possible or soon thereafter. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us all iniquity and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, the question you need to ask of that test is, how can God be just to forgive you just because you say it's sin? He is not right to do that. You know that. He can't. That's wrong. Unless you're already forgiven. Which means sin has to be atoned for. You can't just confess and get off the hook. So what about your sin? Did did you sin? Yes, I did. That's what I'm confessing. I can't let you off. 
you got to pay. But Jesus paid it all. So what you're confessing is a sin that's already been blood-bought. If it hasn't been blood-bought, He can't forgive you because it's got to be atoned for. Isn't that good? You can only confess sins that have already been forgiven. And the proof that they've been forgiven is your confession. The person that doesn't confess has no proof that their sins have been atoned for. So God is righteous to forgive you upon your confession because the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed and is cleansing us from all unrighteousness. How do you run under that righteousness again and again? In that moment of conviction, you don't go any further and you say, I need to confess. Quit demanding the other person to confess. You start confessing, right? A narcissist is not going to stop till that other person sees it. You see it. You see it. And you'll get the freedom and blessing of coming under Christ's righteousness and being forgiven. And now you have the basis to work on the conflict, right? Imagine two narcissists married to each other like Jezebel and Ahab. Oh, just years and years and years of either conflict or one influencing the other to get his way like Ahab did, right? Second, ask yourself in that moment, what was ruling me? You've got to ask that question. I've got to ask that question. James says in James 4, every quarrel and conflict you have comes from lust. It comes from narcissism. It comes from self-absorption. So if I'm going to learn here, I've got to ask, what was absorbing me? What did I want? And then the Holy Spirit enlightens you into all the reasons you were angry and it had nothing to do with God. That could. And if it did, then okay. That's the second thing. Because what confession brings is repentance and then sanctification. If I'm going to do this again and again, I need to know what's ruling me. So ask the question of James 4. What did I want? What do you want, Ahab? I want people to tell me what I do is right. There's your problem. Now repent of that. I want her. I want him. I want that. Do you want what God wants? See? That's how we grow. And then thirdly, surround yourself with Micaiahs. Now this gets outside of your marriage here, right? You need somebody in your life like Micaiah, a faithful prophet, who we'll look at next time, who notwithstanding 400 people had just said the very opposite, he's going to go right in there and tell Ahab exactly what he needs to hear. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. All right, how are you going to take heed? Exhort one another every day. Do you have someone in your life who's going to exhort you, not just go along with what you say, not just going to want to do what you do, but is willing to say, I need to talk to you. Exhort one another daily while it is called today. Now, why do you think he said that? Because if you don't do it now, something's going to happen to lead you down the pathway of Ahab lest you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Now get the picture of hardening. So you ignore the Holy Ghost, you ignore the conviction, and you ignore it, and you ignore it, and you get hardened. And guess what? You don't hear anymore. You don't hear anybody. You don't hear anything. And you're on your pathway of a departure from the living God. 
And rest assured, beloved, that departure will not end well. Ahab's departure did not end well in this life or the next. So we need Micaiahs. We need people in our lives that are willing to go against the grain and willing to have the courage to speak into our lives that which is sometimes painful, hard to hear, so that we, through that exhortation, we stay on the pathway of a pliable heart that's listening to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. As He communicates the Word, He prompts us through conviction that leads us to be partakers of Christ, is what Hebrews 3 says. So run under Christ's righteousness, again, with confession, ask yourself what is ruling you, and then have somebody in your life. And you be that person to somebody else, like Micaiah, who's willing to say, which takes courage, right? Fear can sometimes grip all of us. I, I can get pretty afraid sometimes. Say, Lord, be with me. This is, this is how you love somebody. And you're willing to say what needs to be said. Let's pray. Father, uh, our hearts are uh, convicted this morning. We all know and we've experienced, uh, if not excessive, we've all experienced what self-absorption is, what it brings, and how it works in our relationships. We know it all too well. None of us is exempt. So Lord, first we just confess it to you as a church. Uh, We confess and we want to run under the justifying holy righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the way we do that is confession. And then we experience again and again the forgiveness of our Father. And we know then you're cleansing us. You're cleansing the cleansed. You're purifying the pure. You're washing those that have already been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, help us to be aware by the Holy Spirit's presence what's ruling us, as James would would pose the question. Why are you fighting? Why are you warring? Well, it's because of your lust. And so, Lord, help us to be honest with that and not be like Ahab, self-deceiver, who went on in the pathway of self-deception and self-love until the point of his death. So rescue us. We need your rescue and grace. And we thank you for your marvelous grace. And Lord, help us to be like Micaiah, faithful of the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy. And may we mark that well. The kisses of an enemy, the hugs of an enemy, the words of an enemy are death. And let us be warned and equipped. And may you bless us to experience these things. In Jesus' name.